Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 9, or we're going through the Gospel of Mark here on Sunday mornings, and we were up to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 29, so a good portion of the chapter. Mark verses 9, or chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. And our custom is here, if you're able to do so, that you might stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word. And when they came to the, to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, and we know that we are dependent upon you even to understand it this morning. So we ask that you would work in us by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Great things from your word. Uh, help us, as the Father in the, in the story says, we believe, help our unbelief. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you weren't here with us the last uh, couple Sundays, the verses prior to this are about what we, what we often call the transfiguration of Christ. He went on the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John, and all of a sudden it says he was transfigured before them. And what that means is, Basically, his glory became manifest. He went from being just a regular-looking you know, man, as you know, we have no reason to believe from the scriptures that he looked remarkable on his own. In fact, Isaiah would seem to imply the opposite. There was nothing special about the way he looked on an everyday basis during his earthly ministry. But on top of that mountain, all of a sudden, he was shining. His clothes even became so radiantly white, uh, Mark says, that no, no uh, we don't use the same kind of words that your King James sometimes uh, does for someone who does laundry, but basically nobody could bleach his clothes as white as they were. 
And his glory was so bright, it says that the, the disciples were terrified by it. Peter, James, and John were, the glory of Christ was so overwhelming that they were actually afraid of it. And Peter was kind of saying things, and it says he didn't know what to say, for, he, for they were terrified. He talked about building three tents, you know, for, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, and they could stay on top of the mountain. Uh, after that, on the way back down the mountain, Jesus told them, don't tell anyone what you saw until after I'm raised from the dead. And what does it say? They, they kind of asked each other, what is he talking about? What's this rising from the dead thing that Jesus keeps talking about? This mystery, according to them at that time, they still didn't quite understand. Well, you go from this glory on top of the mountain where Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah in his glory, talking to them about his departure, and then he gets down to the back, back down the mountain with the rest of the disciples, um, and it seems like that mountaintop experience doesn't take long to vanish. You go from his glory being manifested to being kind of harassed by a, a crowd of unbelieving people and scribes and even a demon-possessed boy and even his disciples failing to be able to do what he had called them to do while he was gone as far as ministering to, to the people down, down below. You have Jesus on top of the mountain having his glory revealed. You have his conversation with Moses and Elijah. If you can imagine how great that must have, have been. You have even in that text the voice of God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, to him you shall listen. All of that, and then you get down to the bottom of the hill and you have the unbelief of the crowds, the hostility, the opposition of the scribes, who always seem to be showing up at the worst times. You even have the slowness of heart to believe among his own disciples, who even though they should have been, were unable to cast the demon out of that boy. And if all of that weren't bad enough, Jesus is once again in the Gospel of Mark faced with a demon tormenting and trying to destroy someone. Demonic opposition. He goes from the voice of his father on top of the mountain to a demon oppressing and seeking to destroy even a young boy. If you can imagine how wicked that is. First John chapter 3, verse 8, John says there that the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason he came, was to destroy the works of the devil. Well, here Mark reminds us of what the real fight is that's going on. It's, it's kind of remarkable. You know, we, we often forget kind of the presuppositions that people had at the time. What kind of Messiah did the people expect? They expected a military, a political Messiah, someone to come and overthrow Rome, someone to, to take the boot of Rome off the neck of Israel. And what we see in texts like this is the real fight wasn't military at all. The real fight was a much more difficult fight, even if maybe not, not so much outwardly. That Jesus really was doing battle, combat, with the devil himself in his earthly ministry and saving sinners. And that, that pops up from time to time in the Gospel of Mark. It's like every once in a while Mark brings something like this up. And to our modern eyes and ears, you know, maybe we're tempted to say, you know, does that, that stuff actually happen? Do demon, does the devil really exist? Do demons exist? And we affirm that they do. Many, many do not. But the point of this story isn't so much that. It's, it's very easy for us to get kind of caught up in all the fantastic details of, of the more dramatic elements of the story, the demonic possession, Jesus casting this demon out of this, this uh, unclean spirit out of this young boy. Uh, but what's, what's the theme of the passage? What's Mark's emphasis and what's Jesus' emphasis in this text? 
Certainly the, the, the demon and Jesus dealing with that demon, that unclean spirit, is, is prominent. But the real focus of this passage can be summed up, I believe, in one word. And that word is faith. The message of Mark 9, verses 14 to 29, is a message about faith. The demon possession of that, of that child is incidental to it. It's, it's kind of the occasion for which Jesus uses to bring this subject of faith up. And I'll, I'll bring that out in a second. Think about the crowds. First, the crowds in the text. They tell him of, of the disciples' inability to cast the demon out of this boy. And what does Jesus say to them in reply? He says in verse 19, O faithless generation, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Faithless. No, no faith. No trusting in him. After all this time, after everything he had done, did the crowds and even his disciples in some sense still not believe, did they still not have faith in him and know and understand who he was and what he came to do and what he was capable of doing in their lives? Faithless generation. What about the boy's father? The boy's father says to Jesus in verse 22, he says, but if you can do anything, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He just got done telling Jesus, your disciples couldn't do anything. They were unable. But he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And what does Jesus say? He kind of repeats the guy's words right back to him in kind of an incredulous way. You know, it's kind of difficult to translate, but I take it like this. If you can, do you know who you're talking to? Do you really doubt my ability? He says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And to that, the boy's father cried out, what? I believe, help my unbelief. First, he says, if you can do something, have compassion and help us. Help us in the situation. And then the boy's father says something that is wise beyond his, probably even his own understanding. Don't just help us. Help even my unbelief. I'm having trouble with this. I don't even know, you know, I can't even believe on my own rightly and help my unbelief, he says. And then lastly, the disciples. So the crowd, the boy's father, and the disciples, when they ask Jesus, you know, why were we, why were we not able to, to cast this demon out? How come it, it didn't work? How come it didn't take? What did Jesus say? This kind cannot be driven out, verse 29, by anything but prayer. Now, in his, his parallel account, you might know there are four Gospels in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often called the Synoptic Gospels, which means they have the same point of view. They tell a very similar angle of story on, on the thing. John is somewhat different. They all tell the truth, but they all tell it from their own perspective and to their own particular audience, in a sense. Matthew, in his account, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, when they ask Jesus that question, what does he say to them? He says the reason they couldn't drive that demon out, they couldn't do it, was, quote, because of your little faith. Because of your little faith. And he says, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, and think about that, what mountain? The one he was just transfigured on top of. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Their faith. So seeing that faith is the primary focus of Christ in our text, 
I think this morning what we'll do is we'll try to see what the passage here from God's word has to say about and has to teach us about faith. We're going to look at kind of in turn, in order, what uh, the subject of faith, uh, what we're told about it, based on these three individuals or groups of people in our text. The first is the absence of faith. The faithless generation that Jesus talks about in verse 19, the absence of faith. Secondly, the weak faith, the weak faith of that, that boy's father. The, it's kind of faith mixed with doubt, faith mixed with unbelief. And then thirdly, the littleness, littleness of faith, if I can make up a word, uh, of the disciples themselves. So the first thing we're going to see in our text this morning is the absence of faith. We see the crowd and the scribes gathered around the disciples. And what does Jesus describe them as? faithless generation. You know, if you think about what that phrase might remind you of, it kind of remind, takes you back to the Old Testament, doesn't it? The, the different generations in, of Israel, even the one that, that was not allowed to enter into the Promised Land. Why, why were they not allowed to enter in? The New Testament says because of their unbelief. Jesus is kind of saying, you know, this, the more things change, the more they stay the same. This generation is a lot like that one is kind of what he's hinting at. Look at verses 14 to 18. Verses 14 to 18, Mark says, And when they came to the the disciples, the nine that didn't go up the mountain, right? When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. A few quick things. Uh, some commentators say that it might, when you, maybe when you were following along in the reading of the text, you might have thought, it sounded kind of strange. Why does he say that the crowd was greatly amazed? It, it, it's kind of a, a stronger word than it kind of means awestruck. It's 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 kind of a shocking thing. They saw Jesus coming down the mountain and, and, and showing up at the crowd. They were they were just dumbfounded at what they saw. Now some some have said or, or suggested that this was kind of like Moses coming down the mountain, where his face was still glowing from the Shekinah glory of seeing God's glory, and that maybe Jesus' face was still shining a bit. Uh, The text doesn't say that, so we don't want to assume something that it doesn't say. Uh, Mark certainly doesn't seem to to, uh, say what the reason was for their amazement. It could have been something along the lines of, they've been talking about him this whole time, and all of a sudden, there he is. You know, his disciples, remember, what 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 does the man say? Who does the man say they brought the child to? He doesn't say, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't do anything. He actually says... I brought him to you. When he brought his son to the disciples, in his mind, it was the same thing as bringing him to Jesus. And they couldn't do anything. But then who shows up? Jesus himself shows up. You know, why, why didn't Jesus show up before that? That would have been much more convenient for the disciples if Jesus had already been there when the man showed up with his son, but that wasn't the case. Now, the first thing that, that they see as they come back down from this mountain is a great crowd gathered. Everywhere Jesus went, there seemed to be crowds gathered. Even when he wasn't there right at the moment, wherever he was going to be, it seems like they, it was like a magnet. They showed up. And it says that the scribes were arguing with them. 
Verse 14. Now, who were the scribes? Some of us, that might not be a very familiar uh, thing. If you're familiar with the New Testament, with the Gospels, often it says something like this. The scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees, kind of like peanut butter and jelly, they were the ones that were opposing Jesus Christ in many ways. The scribes were some of the religious leaders of the day. They were the experts in the Old Testament law of Moses. And so, if anybody should have been expected to believe in Christ, you would think it would be them. But very consistently, that's not what you see in the Gospels. They are, in a lot of ways, the main opponents, the main human opponents of Christ and his ministry on this earth. Well, needless to say from our text, that the other nine disciples at the time, the ones that didn't go up the hill, they weren't exactly having a very good day. They had uh, been faced with this man's son who, was, who had a uh, demon oppressed him and was seeking to destroy him. This man had brought his son to them for help and they were unable to help them to make it worse. You have the scribes arguing with them and we, we doesn't really say all the details, but it's almost certain that these scribes had seized upon this opportunity, their failure in some way to discredit not just the disciples, but their master as well. Any chance they had to discredit Christ and to attack his name, it seems that they did it. Well, when Jesus sees all of this and hears what was happening, what does he say? What's his response? How does Jesus summarize this whole picture of this crowd and the scribes at the bottom of this mountain? It says, He answered them, O faithless generation. When he saw the crowd, when he saw the scribes arguing with his disciples, he saw faithless. He saw a faithless Generation and says, How long am I to be with you? How am I how long am I to bear with you? And then he says, Bring him to me. So Jesus focuses on their lack of faith. He focuses on their unbelief that they had by and large not put their trust in him. It sounds like he's exasperated, doesn't it? And you could you could excuse him for feeling that way. If you think about it, this too is one more part of Christ's humiliation and sufferings, the things that he endured in accomplishing our salvation. And notice once again that, you know, again, if you haven't been with us, read through the Gospel of Mark sometime. Maybe this afternoon when you get home from church this morning. Read through the Gospel of Mark and notice how many times Mark mentions crowds. It shows up in the Gospels, especially in Mark, over and over and over again. And, you know, in our day, you know, we're, we're very numbers-oriented. Numbers aren't a bad thing. Uh, we think of our church, we always would like it to be bigger. Everybody wants their church to be bigger. Now, if you're reaching people with the gospel, that's, that's the right thing. Um, but numbers, crowds in the gospels don't equate to faith. Great crowds in the gospels does not always equal the presence of great faith. In fact, very often it's just the opposite. In, in, in the gospel of Mark in particular, great crowds are often seen as, as representing great opposition to Jesus. It doesn't seem that way, right? I mean, they're following him. You know, if, if wherever Jesus goes, you know, sometimes thousands of people show up. You would think, wow, look at this. These people are all flocking after Jesus. They're all believing on him. But Mark, Mark seems to paint a different picture of that. And we see Jesus' own view here was that he, see, he saw these crowds in some ways as the opposite of faith, as a faithless generation but notice on top of that the great compassion of Christ here in the text that's also a theme you see running under the surface of this of this passage despite his frustration despite 
his exasperation at the unbelief of many of the people that were there and what it caused to happen with the, this father and his son and his disciples. What does he say at the end of verse 19? He doesn't say enough. You know, go away, leave me alone. You people are always following me, but don't really believe in me. He says, bring him to me. He doesn't write them off. He doesn't say, I've had enough. This is the last straw. He says, bring, bring that boy. Bring him to me. He, even after all that, he's willing to show mercy and compassion to those who are suffering at the hands of Satan, isn't he? Once again, Mark reminds us, Jesus, this is a theme all throughout Mark. Jesus never turns away anyone who comes to him for mercy. You will never see in the Bible, especially not in the Gospel of Mark, someone coming to Christ for mercy and Christ turning them away. What you find is they come to Christ for mercy. They may not understand everything. He shows mercy. Other times you see people come to him and they turn themselves away. That you do see. People refusing to come to him to have life. But you never see Jesus turning people away. Notice also, in our text, technically... Only one person in this crowd really comes to Christ for mercy. We don't know the real motivation and reasons for the rest of the crowd, but in the text, only one person, the boy's father, comes to Christ for mercy. And that brings us to our second point, and that's the point of weak faith. We see here the weak faith of the boy's father, that is faith that's mixed with doubt, faith that's even, according to his own words, mixed with unbelief in some way. In verses 20 to 22, Mark says... And they brought the boy to him, just like he asked them to. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You know, sometimes... Uh, when you read, sometimes reading different commentaries can be kind of frustrating, especially the kind of more liberal leaning ones. And they'll say, you know, when you read, I'm no doctor, you know, I'm not a medical professional, I don't play one on TV, but they'll say, look at the description of what's happening. And they'll say, this boy was having a grand mal seizure. And so they'll say, you know, read that back. What is that? What are they trying to say? They're saying, well, there was no really, there really was no demon involved. There was no really unclean spirit involved. They were primitive people. You know, they're practically cavemen because they don't have remote controls and airplanes. You know, and so uh, we have microwaves and things, so we're much more intelligent than they are. We're not superstitious like they were. Um, so they must have really just thought it was a demon, but he was really just sick. And so Jesus, you know, dot dot dot, uh, however you want to say it, but it doesn't say that at all, does it? What does it say there? When 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 it saw him. When the spirit saw, this, this unclean spirit saw Jesus, it reacted in a violent manner. It threw the boy to the ground. It, did, it, it kind of did the exact same thing that the man, the, the boy's father, described almost to a T. Threw him to the ground, convulsed him violently. Uh, he was foaming at, foaming at the mouth, gnashing or grinding of his teeth. He, he, was, he was hurting this young child. Now this poor boy was suffering for a long time. And we don't know how long the boy had been seeking help, but you assume, like any parent does, when your child is suffering, you look for help any way you can. If, if, you know, sometimes you'll even take chances on, on things that, well, this is no way this is going to work, but you know what? If I don't try it, I'll never know. I'll just keep doing whatever I have to do. 
And so he finally brings his son to Jesus' disciples. And then what happened? Another disappointment. Nothing happened. They were unable, unable to help. So he says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It sounds like he's kind of at his last, the last straw. He's at the end, end of his rope. He's lost almost all hope for the salvation and well-being of his, of his son. And he's not even sure that Jesus is able or willing to do anything to help. He's not sure. He doesn't see Jesus and says to himself, he doesn't say, well, now that Jesus is here, of course Jesus will do something. Of course Jesus can. He's not quite sure. But he did bring him. He did bring him. And what does Jesus say? Again, he says, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, it's kind of as if Jesus couldn't believe his own ears. That this man would say, if, if you can. He can't believe the unbelief or weakness of faith of the boy's father. That this, this boy's father could doubt his ability. That he could doubt that Jesus really is mighty to save. Now, we might look at this text uh, and kind of shake our heads a little bit and say, oh, how could he possibly not believe Jesus would be willing and able to save? But we think the same things, don't we? You know, think, think about this like prayer. Prayer is brought up at the end of the passage. This man, he's asking Jesus to save his son. How many of us that have children don't often pray and ask Jesus to save our children, to be with them, to help them? And how often do we sometimes, after years of praying, not go, uh, we, might not say, we might not say if you can. Most of us, are, are, I think we're at least smart enough or sharp enough to know that God can do, can do anything, but sometimes we doubt whether he will. We doubt his compassion for the suffering and for those even in our own families. And then what does Jesus say? He says, all things are possible for one who believes. That may be a text or a verse or a passage of scripture that gets t- twisted out of uh, the meaning of scripture more than almost any other. People say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians, right? We misapply these things in a lot of different ways. He's not, he's not saying that we should try to do miraculous things on our own. If we just have enough faith uh, that we can do those things. What, why are all things possible according to what Jesus says there? What does Jesus mean by all things being possible? He's, this is what he's not saying. He's not saying that all things are possible because somehow faith in and of itself makes them possible. This is not Norman Vincent Peale. This is not the power of positive thinking. That's how it often gets twisted around. If you just think good thoughts... You know, if you just have enough faith in faith, as if faith itself, on its own, you know, taken apart from its object, is somehow sufficient, has some kind of power in and of itself. You and I are not called to have faith in our faith. I think that's often how we take it. You, you should not have faith in your faith. Your faith is in Christ. And there's a huge difference. You don't rely on your faith in and of itself. Your faith is relying on Christ himself. The Lord Jesus is the one who can do all things. And so the one who trusts in him to that one, because of Christ, all things are possible. All things on on its own, all things are not possible for you and me on our own. But if you're not on your own and if you're trusting in Christ, then all things are possible because of him. Now, 
What does is, what is the boy's father say in, in response to all this? Jesus, you know, it, it, it probably sounded very much like a rebuke, didn't it? The boy, he comes to Jesus with his son. His son is in the midst of having this demonic fit twisting around in the ground. And Jesus says, you know, kind of throws his own words back to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And what, is, what do you think that kind of means? If I'm the boy's father, I'm taking that as kind of it's my fault. If I would just believe enough. So what does the boy's father say? It says immediately, verse 24, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now that's one of those uh, phrases in, in, in the New Testament that I think every Christian that hears them, when you read them, all you can think of to say is Amen. I think if you ever get to a point in your Christian life, if you're a believer this morning here in Christ, if you ever get to a point in your life, in this life, where you read that verse and hear those words and don't say, Amen, brother, that's me too, you're, something's wrong. None of us are going to get past the point of needing to say such a thing to Christ. We all need to say to Christ, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's probably not a cry that more epitomizes the heart's cry of a, of a Christian, of a believer in this life, in the scriptures, I believe, than, than that. If you're a long-time Christian, does your heart not still say those things? Do you not still say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I know my faith has a long way to go. John Calvin writes this, he says, He declares that he believes and yet acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in his self. Calvin said that. John Calvin said, yep, that's me too. And if that's not you, you're lying. Or you're not even a, a believer to begin with. The weak faith, and I think this is the point here with the Father, weak faith does not equal the absence of faith. There's a huge difference between weak faith and no faith. Faith afflicted by doubt is not false faith. Our faith in this life at its best is not perfect. It's far from perfect. Our faith is not yet sight, but one day it will be. It's kind of ironic. Your faith will be perfected when you don't need it anymore. It's just the way, the way that it is. If you're a believer in Christ here this morning and you struggle with doubt at times... Remember, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the strength of Christ himself that saves you. And so your faith, again, is not faith in faith. Your faith is in Christ himself. It's been often said uh, by much wiser than I that even the weakest faith lays hold of a mighty Savior. Faith, faith itself does not save. Faith alone in Christ alone saves. That's the difference. What is, what is saving faith? What is faith? We throw that word around sometimes and we don't think about what it means. What, is, what exactly is faith? The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way, question 86. It describes faith as, quote, a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him, that's Christ, we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith looks to Jesus alone. It receives Christ alone. It rests its weight upon Christ alone for salvation. Faith doesn't rest on faith. The object of faith is Christ and not faith itself. What about you? 
Have, have you come to Christ by, by faith? Are you resting upon something else for salvation, or are you resting upon Christ alone for your salvation? Are you resting upon being a good person? Are you resting upon going to church or being a church member or spending 20 minutes in the morning on Bible study? Are you resting on anything besides Christ himself? If you have not yet done so, turn to Christ by faith. Rest upon him alone for salvation. And him, in him only you will find the compassion that you need and help in time of need. Do you believe that Jesus stands ready to receive and help even the worst of sinners? That's what this passage and others would have us to believe. And note one more thing. Note again, this keeps coming up in the text. Note the compassion of Christ. The compassion of our Savior. He's more than willing to have compassion on the boy and on his father and help them. Look, look at how quickly and how completely the Savior shows compassion upon hearing that man's cry. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And immediately he heals the boy and casts out the demon. Isaiah 42, verse 3, it says this, describing Christ, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He's talking about us. Talking about people with weak faith. People that trust in Christ, but barely, and only by the grace of God, are entrusting in Him. Christ is the kind of Savior that doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't, you know, that candle that's almost out and you can barely see a little bit of the glow of an ember there. He doesn't put it out. He doesn't say, this is the last time. You know, how long am I going to bear with you? He fans the flame back once again. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God has great compassion and mercy for his people. Even in our weakest moments, our weakness of our faith, even when we're struggling with doubts, um, we can trust his compassion and his grace. And the last thing I want to see in our text is the littleness of the faith of his disciples. It's similar to the weakness of faith, but the littleness of faith. Look at verse 28 and 29. Mark says, And when he had entered the house, so he's already he's cast the demon out of the boy, he's healed the boy, And now he's going in the house away from the crowds. It's just him and the disciples. And it says, when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, taking that together with Matthew's account that we read earlier, Matthew 17, 20. Remember what he says there? Because of your little faith. And he even says, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, mustard seed is a pretty small seed. You can barely see it. And he says, if you had faith like that, what? You could you know, say to this mountain, you know, go over there and it would move. All things possible. That's the same kind of, of thing he's, he's saying. Um, what's the difference? You know, what, why the difference? Why does Mark say prayer and Matthew say faith? And what do they have to do with each other? You know, why? They take different notes. You know, that was Jesus saying one thing and then Matthew heard something else? And No, there's, a, there's a, a relation between the two. William Hendrickson, a great New Testament scholar of, of, of years ago, wrote this. According to Matthew, Jesus answers this question by saying, because of your little faith. Essentially, Mark's report of Christ's answer amounts to this. Because of your little slack, slapdash prayer. So what he's saying is, Matthew says your little faith 
Mark says your little prayer, that they don't pray much. And he says, of course, these two go together. Where there is little faith, there is little prayer. So it's not some random difference. There's a very strong connection between the two. What is prayer except looking to God in faith? How else do you pray if you don't believe God hears, if you don't believe God is mercy and will answer? Prayer looks to the self, the all-sufficiency of God who makes all things possible. If you and I fail to pray, which is often the case more than it should, when we fail to pray, it's often for two very similar reasons. We have a low view of God's ability or willingness to help. Or, and probably at the same time, we have a high or overinflated view of our own ability to handle things on our own. Pride. Prayer and pride don't go together. Faith and prayer go together. If I don't pray, it's because I probably think I can handle it. Maybe God sometimes brings circumstances into our lives to remind us that we can't. On our own, like Christ says, apart from me, John 5, uh, 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. That whole verse says, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is, in other words, and not the other one, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So if you and I want to abide, if we want to bear fruit, we have to abide in Christ. We have to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ and look to him by faith if you want to accomplish anything in his name in this life, no matter what that might be. So let us be a people characterized by prayer that might also be characterized by faith. If, if we struggle with prayer, examine our faith. And if you want to increase in faith, one of the things you can do is increase in prayer. Stop trusting in your own abilities, your own wisdom, and turn to Christ and pray to him and pray for the help to do his will. Let us not be ashamed to cry out to our compassionate Savior like that boy's father did. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Mark 9.24 And let us seek by God's grace to grow in our most holy faith. We need to grow in our faith. Use the means of grace that God has given to us in his word and in prayer. It brings to mind the words of Jude. Only one chapter, verses 20 to 21 in Jude. It says, But you, beloved building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. See how he keeps those two together? There's a reason for that. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy, compassion, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Faith and prayer. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for everything that it teaches us about Christ that it teaches us and reminds us about faith and what it means to trust in Christ alone for salvation. We thank you for the cry of that boy's father that we hear echoing in our own hearts uh, not even enough times as it should when he says, Lord, we believe, this is what we should say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we even ask that now. We pray that you would be with anybody here this morning who doesn't yet know you, that if there's anyone here today that does not, has not yet trusted in Christ for salvation, that you would bring them to yourself. Grant them salvation. Grant them faith in you. Make them alive from the dead. Open their eyes that they might believe, look to Christ, and have life in his name. And we pray for those of us who do know you already that you would help our unbelief. Uh,
Take away our doubts. Give us grace to grow and be strengthened in our faith in Christ. Help us not to trust in our own faith, but to trust and look to Christ himself and have assurance by looking to him. Increase our faith. Make us a people of prayer. Help us to to live and pray and believe in a way that glorifies you, that we can do all things through you because we abide in you. And we pray that you would glorify your name here among us by doing just that. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.